welcome you to, um, believe it or not, this morning is actually the penultimate week of this series, meaning it's the, the week before, the final week. And um, what we're going to do, you could kind of think of this week as, as basically part one of a two-part conclusion to this series. And um, I thought the most appropriate way to kind of land the plane, talking about the faces of sin, is by looking this week at the what a, a lot of people consider to be the most famous failure uh, in the entire Bible. That's the story of, of um, David and Bathsheba. And one of the things that makes this story so unique is that we really get a behind-the-scenes look uh, at how David rose from this failure, as catastrophic as it was. You're about to see in a few minutes here. Uh, Psalm 51 really gives us a detailed look into how David was able to rise from such a catastrophic failure um, and not, not just sort of be okay, but to rise with even greater hope and greater joy and greater poise and character and wisdom than he had before his failure. And so that's what we're going to focus on next week. But in light of that, I don't know that I've ever really asked this before, but I do just want to ask you, I know everybody's busy and, you know, we got stuff going on, but if at all possible, please clear your schedule seven days from now and be here for the conclusion of this series because next week, the topic that we're going to talk about is really... Um, it's going to provide resolution to what we've been building up to for the last several weeks. But, of course, before we get to that, we've got to look at the failure that necessitated David's repentance, and that's recorded for us in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12. Um, I've pulled, I, you know, I didn't want to read, uh, you know, hit you with a couple dozen verses this morning, so I'll just hit you with the highlight reel here. We'll be in chapter 11, verses 1 to 5, 14 to 17, and then chapter 12, 1 to 7. So let me read it. Chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he reported, This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now, she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterward, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. Verse 14. <clears throat> the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he's struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hittite also died. Chapter 12, verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, There were two men in a certain city one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up, living with him and his children. It shared his meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who would come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. 
David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied to David, you are the man. This is God's word. Heavy one. About a year ago now, uh, I did a series through the life of David, and I, I call it Peaks and Valleys because if you study David's life start to finish, his life is recorded in First and Second Samuel, um, which a lot of times are actually referred to as the book of David because it so centrally focuses on him. David's life is, it's a story of someone who was constantly going from the peak to the valley. David just, he didn't have a middle ground. You know, he, he was either getting it uh, all the way right and he just looked amazing, or he was getting it all the way wrong, and he just was, you couldn't even, you know, lock eyes with him. And so this, this chapter from David's life, it's extremely on brand for David, because what you're seeing here is, on the one hand, David at his worst in this sin with Bathsheba, but on the other hand, in a really ironic way, you're actually also seeing David in his best, you know, when he's willing to, to confess and repent and fall on his sword without any kind of excuse or explanation. And so what I want to do in this, um, in this story that we're looking at, it, just chop it up into three pieces. And I'm going to look first off at what David shows us about the power of sin. Then secondly, we're going to look at what Nathan the prophet shows us about the desperate need for friendship that we all have. And then um, I want to look at what the conclusion shows us about the hope that the gospel offers to people who have made an absolute mess of their lives, which is Good news to a sinner like me, and maybe you can say amen to that. So first off, I, I read to you the kind of the highlight of the story, um, but in order to really feel the full weight of it, let me just walk through the details that I didn't uh, take the time to read. So this story begins, like you saw, with David on a rooftop, and uh, he's kind of surveying the city, and a beautiful woman catches his eye, and he's, he wants to know who the woman is. He inquires about her, and he finds out that she is... Bathsheba, and significantly enough, we're told that she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, which obviously the story makes plain, is one of David's soldiers. But what what you should know in order to really kind of appreciate the weight of this story and actually how ugly David's sin is, that Uriah wasn't just any old soldier. In 2 Samuel 23, uh, we're told that David had an inner ring of warriors that he surrounded himself with when he lived, you know, when he was anointed king, um, he wasn't set in that day. King Saul sat on the throne, and, and Saul was murderously jealous of David. So David had to spend about a decade of his life on the run from Saul as a fugitive. And he, um, he drew these, these warriors uh, to him that Scripture calls his mighty men. Uh, it was only about 30 of them, and Uriah was one of them. So these weren't just soldiers. These were friends. These were comrades. These were men to whom David owed his life. And not only was Uriah in that group, but like the story says, he was Uriah the Hittite. He was not Uriah the Israelite. It's a really significant thing because in a day and age when, you know, the only thing that matters was blood bond. The only thing that matters was are we members of the same nation? Are we of the same people? You know, are we kin? Uh, Uriah wasn't even blood bound to David. He, he, he voluntarily chose to serve him and fight for him and look out for him. And, and here Uriah is away doing what he's done his whole life, which is lay his life down for David. And David uh, sends to... to uh, he has his servants basically grab Bathsheba and bring her to him because what choice did she have in the matter? This is the ancient Near East. It doesn't bode well for you if you say no to a king. 
And so he sends for, for this guy's wife, and, and she comes to him, and, and he sleeps with her. And, and then not long after that, uh, he finds out that she's pregnant. And so David kind of shifts gears into figuring out, all right, how do I cover this thing up? Uh, and he basically had a three-part plan. The first and, and the simplest way to do this was, all right, let me pull Uriah home under false pretenses that I want a report about how the battle's going. Uh, and then he sends Uriah home thinking that Uriah would do what literally anybody else in his position would do, which is go home and, and sleep with your wife. Uriah refused to do that. Uh, he was a man of such integrity and such character that he refused to um, enjoy the comfort of his own home when his soldiers, his men, were out there sleeping in fields. So he, he wouldn't go home. David found out about that, and so he decides to grease the skids with alcohol, and he gets Uriah drunk. But the story tells us that alcohol wasn't even powerful enough to drive out the character of Uriah. He still refused to do it. And so David, as what he felt was a last resort, he arranges for basically Uriah's murder, his assassination. He writes a letter to Joab, the leader of the military, and he says, I want you to send Uriah to the front lines where the fighting's the fiercest and the enemy soldiers are the best. And when it really starts to get thick, just abandon him and leave him to die. And so um, he sends that letter with Uriah to carry to Joab, which you think about it, that's a really significant thing uh, because it proves that David himself was so confident, he was so sure of Uriah's character, Uriah's integrity, and Uriah's loyalty to him that David knew there was no chance Uriah would read that letter. And so Uriah takes what is essentially his own death sentence to Joab, the leader of the military. Joab does what his king commanded. Uriah dies. Bathsheba hears about this. She goes into a time of mourning. And after that, David takes this woman as his wife. And as far as he's concerned, that's the end of it. Of course, that's not the end of it. But let me pause here. It's a, it's a hard thing to do, you know, when you're kind of raised hearing or reading these stories your whole life. But if, if you were just reading through the Old Testament, specifically First and Second Samuel, and you came to this story, it'd be enough to knock you out of your chair. Because David, and this is one of the things that makes him unique, David is basically the golden boy of the Old Testament. Uh, you know, when, when David is first introduced to us, we see that he is hand-selected by God to lead God's people, despite the fact that he's the runt of the litter in his own family. And when it came time for roll call, his own father didn't even bother calling him because he was the smallest and the youngest. And, that, of course, that's the one that God chose. It's just, you know, pulls at your heartstrings kind of underdog story. Uh, not long after that, David is the shepherd boy that has the courage to stand before the giant Goliath. That's a story that has universal appeal. There are so many people that have never cracked the binding on the Word of God, never stepped foot in a church, and they have found, uh, you know, inspiration and encouragement from a story like that. David is the only character in both Old and New Testament of whom it said he was a man after God's own heart. And not only that, you know, David wasn't just you know, it wasn't like he was just a meathead, like a guy that just liked to kill in the name of God. David had a depth to him that is so admirable. He's, he's written down his prayers, and they become what we refer to as the book of Psalms, which is basically this guidebook for the last several thousand years that have allowed countless people to develop a, a, a prayer life with God and a depth of intimacy um, and awe in the presence of God that would never otherwise be possible. And yet, in the span of a chapter, this guy, that David, turns into this narcissistic, uh, murderous, adulterous monster. And, you know, of course, it begs the question, why, why would you put a story like this in the Bible? What on earth is that meant to teach us? And the, the first and most obvious answer is this story is meant to teach us that even the best of us are capable of the worst things. You look at the story of David at face value, and it is this really sobering reminder that no matter how long you've walked with God, and this is so in line with the whole reason I wanted to spend a couple of weeks in this, this you know, series, The Faces of Sin, 
This particular chapter in David's life is this really sobering reminder. No matter how long you've walked with God, no matter what levels of intimacy you've, you've experienced with God, no matter how powerfully you have been used by God, the seeds of the worst sins exist in your heart and mind, and they are just waiting, waiting for an environment in which they can grow and bear fruit. Now, I, I could leave that, and we could sort of move on from point one, and the application would be just basically, or don't overestimate yourself, which is absolutely good news, and it's definitely something that we can pull from this story, but this story actually gives us more than that. Uh, because think about it this way, when you read about this particular episode in David's life, it doesn't just say one day David woke up, stole one of his soldier's wives, and had him killed. If it did, there really wouldn't be a whole lot to get from it, but instead this story gives us a really detailed description of the life cycle of sin in David's life. It, it tells us how his sin began, what it ended with, and how David got from point A to point B. And so what I want to do here, before we move on from the, from the first um, part of, of, of today's teaching, is just pull th- three things that this particular story shows us about the life cycle of sin. And I've said something like this every week of this series, but as I walk through this, I would just ask you, would you please have the you know, courage or vulnerability, security, however you want to phrase that, would you just please take a moment to ask yourself to what degree what happened in David's life might be happening in your life right now? All right, let's just pull these three things out. The first thing that we see here in David's life is that sin begins with separation. In, in verse 1, very first verse of this story, it says, In the spring when kings march out to war... David sent Joab and his officers with all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. And here's the phrase that's worth paying attention to. But David remained in Jerusalem. All right, the famous failures in this story are obvious, you know, the things that grab your attention are things like murder and adultery and all that kind of stuff. But what's really easy to miss if you move past it too quickly is that the decision that David made that led to every other decision and what became the most shameful chapter of his life, it was just very simply the decision to isolate himself. And, and the point of the story is that's where sin, that's where it starts. You, you, you trace almost, I don't know that there's a single exception to this, you, you, you trace any catastrophe in anybody's life, any catastrophic moral failing in a person's life back far enough, and sooner or later you're going to find a person who decided to isolate themselves from the people that got a place in their life. And so first and foremost, if, if, you know, if you're here this morning and, and you're in a position where you know that, that you don't really have anybody in your life right now that can see or speak into your life, the story of David here is telling you you are in a position uh, of great danger. You are in the same position that David was in when he made a mess of his own life, meaning you are personally, if you, if you find yourself isolated, nobody can really see what you're doing, nobody can really you know, speak into what you're doing, you are in a position not only to make a mess of your life, but a mess of the lives of the people who are closest to you and really counting on you. But, but furthermore, this is a little bit different than the, than the first observation, but it goes right along with it. Even if, you know, you might be listening to this and, and, and you're not really isolated from other people. Maybe you have plenty of people in your life and, you know, or you're attached to a small group, you got some good, whatever it is. The other thing this story shows us is that if, and I think this is a really powerful litmus test that can help us kind of Get honest about what's really going on in our lives. If you and I find ourselves ever engaging in something that a part of us kind of has this instinctive need to hide from other people, we should, even if it's not, you know, 
explicitly wrong. Even if it's not technically, there's no chapter and verse that says I shouldn't do that. If you and I find ourselves engaging in something that a part of us instinctively knows we have to hide from the people God's placed in our lives, we should see that as a red flag immediately. And the reason I say, reason I wanted to, to camp on that for just a moment here is because, you know, you see this in David's life. Certainly, we can see it in our own lives. Scripture says that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? And, and one of the things that that verse is getting at is that our hearts are so deceptive, they keep us in the dark frequently. Our own hearts keep us in the dark about what's going on in our own lives. We're so prone to, you know, self-justification, and we're so prone to self-deception, and, you know, we can so easily say, well, you know, what I'm doing isn't that bad, it's not that big a deal, it's not technically a... If you want to just cut to the quick in your own life, all you need to do is ask yourself, do I feel like I need to hide this activity from the people that God's placed closest to me? And if the answer is yes, there's your red flag that tells you what you need to do because, according to David's story here, sin begins with separation. All right, the, the second thing you, you, you can pull from here, and when you really survey kind of this, this series start to finish, I think this is something that, that we see in David. We really haven't seen in anybody else's story. It's that sin very rarely asks you to take a giant leap. Far more often, what David's showing us is that all sin asks of us is to just take one more step. And here's what I mean. We just talked about the fact that David decided to stay home in the palace instead of go to war. Now, let me ask the question, was that a sin? Was it, did it violate an explicit command of God for David to stay home? And the answer is no. There was no commandment that said kings had to go to war in the spring. It wasn't a good idea for David to do this, but it wasn't a sin. Right? And so because he's home, we're told that he, you know, one evening when he should have been in bed, he's up walking around his rooftop. No problem with that. There's no, there's no chapter and verse that says you can't do that. Then he sees a woman that catches his eye, and he inquires about her. He sends his servants to go find out who she is. Now, once again, I want to point out, there's no explicit command in the Bible that says, thou shalt not inquire about who another person is. It's not technically a sin. It was a really unwise thing to do, but it wasn't technically a violation of God's law. And when he finds out that this woman is Bathsheba, the wife of one of his soldiers, you know, David brings her to himself and sleeps with her. And obviously at that point, you know, we've entered the realm of overt sin. And then like we talked about, David finds out she's pregnant, so he kind of shifts into cover-up mode. And so phase one of the cover-up was, well, let me just bring Uriah back, and then I'll send him home. That didn't work. Phase two was, let me get him drunk, lower his inhibitions. That didn't work. And so phase three was, okay, he's got to die. He can, he's, he's forfeited his right to live. I just have to kill him. And it's not, <clears throat> if you really sit on this story for, for any length of time, it's not difficult to imagine the kinds of things David was telling himself when he made the decision to end Uriah's life. I guarantee you the thought process was something along the lines of, listen, this story can't get out, not just because it would hurt my reputation, but because of what it would do to the morale of the military, uh, the way that it would destabilize things. I mean, you imagine if, if the Israeli military away at war while David's in the palace finds out what David's done here, that's going to sow all kinds of confusion and mistrust and perhaps treason and uprising. This could easily destabilize the entire nation of Israel and so I'm sure David just justified in his mind, Uriah has to die for the sake of the entire kingdom. This is just one of those hard decisions you have to make when you're in leadership. And so he sends Uriah with his own death warrant back to Joab, and he does the deed. Now, let me pause here. 
The question that I'm always asking myself when I, when I put these teachings together is what is this particular passage of Scripture written to teach us? Because like I mentioned, God could have just said, you know, one day David stole one of his soldier's wife and, and, and then he had him killed and it was really ugly. And, but that's not how God recorded it for us. He gave us a detailed description of how this sin evolved in his life. Why would God record it that way? What does he want us to see here? And I'll just tell you what I see. When you and I read 2 Samuel chapter 11, and this is, this is the case with pretty much all the stories in the Bible, it takes us a few seconds to get from, from, from verse 1 to verse 14. So it looks like a giant leap to go from the decision to stay home from a battlefield in verse 1 to the decision to have one of your most loyal soldiers murdered in verse 14. It looks like a giant leap to us, but here's the point. It never felt that way for David because his sin didn't require him to teleport from verse 1 to verse 14. It didn't require him to take a giant leap. All it ever required him to do was take one more step in the wrong direction. So what's the point? Here's the point. No one wakes up where, where David does in this story. No one wakes up one morning to find out that they've done something they swore they'd never do and become someone they swore they'd never be as a result of one crazy decision they made in the heat of the moment. I mean, maybe there's a few exceptions to that in human history, but in general, that's not how we get to where David gets to in this story. The way that we get there is the same way David got to here, one step at a time. You get to verse 14 by going through verses 1 through 13, and, and the more that you walk down that path, the more you feel like, well, it's not that big a deal, and I have to cover this up, and, it, and, and you, you just wake up one day, not through a giant leap, but just because of one more step in the wrong direction. And the other thing this story shows us, which you talk about unsettling, this little chapter in David's life is this reminder that most of the steps, would you please just consider this? Most of the steps you and I take toward our own disaster won't even be sinful in and of themselves because it wasn't sinful for David to stay home from battle. It wasn't sinful for him to walk on his rooftop. It wasn't sinful for him to just ask who a woman was. And so what this, this particular story really requires the reader to ask is, this story should have you and I zooming out from our day-to-day -day decisions and asking, forget what am I doing on a daily basis. The question is, where are my decisions leading me? What's the trajectory? What kind of person am I becoming in life? Right? You and I might be listening to this, and maybe we're not on a daily basis. Maybe we're not making overt, explicit, deliberate, sinful, and immoral decisions. That's not the question we should be asking. The question is, when we zoom out from our lives, get that 30,000-foot view, the question is, what direction is my life heading in because of the decisions I'm making on a daily basis? What kind of person am I actually becoming? And the reason that's a question worth asking is because if at any point in this story, David would have paused long enough to, to ask himself that question, that question alone could have saved more than one life. <clears throat> the third thing that we see here, and again, David is the, is the poster boy of this, is that sin takes far more than you planned to give. And I, I want to look at this in, in two ways, because the story shows us in two ways, the immediate and the long-term impact. First off, I don't know if you, if you caught this, but in Joab's report, when he reports back to tell David how things went, he tells David that a number of Israelite soldiers besides just Uriah died as a result of this cover-up. Now, you, you read the story on the front end. David didn't plan for that. 
I mean, I mean, you go back to verse 1, David didn't plan for anybody to die. But when he did decide that Uriah had to die, he, didn't, he wasn't planning on attending a number of Israelite funerals as a result of this, but that's what happened. And what that's meant to tell us is that our sin, your and my sin, will always have a far greater impact on the people around us than we realize when we're actively engaged in that sin. And the reason for that is because Scripture says that we're relational beings, meaning our, our sin Sin is, is a, is a, it's a personal thing. It's never a private thing. We're relational creatures, and therefore our decisions have relational impact on the people that God places in our lives. That's just the way that it is. That's the short-term impact, but that's not the only way you see the effects here. Because while this story, and, and I'm actually going to get into this more next week. If this feels heavy, it needs to, to appreciate next week. While this story winds up being this amazing display of God's grace, If you read this in the context of 2 Samuel and you go to the end of the book, what you'll find is that this episode in David's life winds up fracturing his family and and really the entire kingdom in a way that nothing was really ever the same after this. I mean, David's sin here wound up sowing seeds of destruction that people generations after him wound up reaping because that's simply the nature of sin. It begins with isolation It only ever asks us to take one more step, and by the time it's done, it's going to take far more than we planned to give. That's a sobering thing to think about. But but again, the, the, the aspect of this story that's really meant to get us to sit up and take notice is the fact that this is David's story. This is the best of us. This is the people that, you know, this is the person that people in the Old Testament were almost putting their hope in, and this is where he found himself, which means none of us are beyond this. And so with that... In mind, I want to shift gears here and now talk about David's rescue. Chapter 11 ends with David thinking this whole thing is behind him, but of course, as is so often the case, um, God had other plans. And so what God does in this story is he sends Nathan the prophet to David. We're going to get into what Nathan says to him, um, but I'll just, you know, let let me pause here for a moment. For whatever reason, I've taught this story before, but for whatever reason, when I was putting uh, this particular teaching together and studying the passage this week, the thing that that really stood out to me, and maybe this is because of the series that we're in, is that what you're looking at in this exchange between Nathan and David is probably, I'll put it this way, I cannot think of a better example in the entire Bible of of a more successful confrontation than this exchange between Nathan and David. And if you've been a part of this series, you've seen it. Because really, in every story that we've looked at up to this one, there's a confrontation and it doesn't work. You saw this at the beginning of this series. We started with Adam and Eve, and maybe you're familiar with the story. When God comes to Adam and Eve after their sin, they don't respond like David does here. Adam throws Eve under the bus and and Eve says, the devil made me do it. Classic, the devil made me do it excuse. But none of them really face themselves. You know, the second week of this series, you had uh, Cain and Abel. And, and when, you know, something was growing in Cain's heart that needed to be nipped in the bud, God came to Cain. God himself came to Cain and tried to get him to face himself, and he wouldn't do it. So he murders Abel, and he goes off, Scripture says, a restless wanderer. We looked at the, at the story of King Saul. You know, God sent Samuel into Saul's life to try to get him to be honest about what was going on in his heart. He wouldn't do it, and so he lost the kingdom because of it. And then we spent two weeks looking at Jonah. And if, if you remember the story of Jonah, Jonah's got a crazy ending. It ends without any resolution whatsoever. It's, it ends with God coming to Jonah, trying to get him to face himself, and it ends with an unanswered question by God aimed at Jonah. 
So, so what you're seeing here between Nathan and David is certainly the most successful confrontation in, in this series, but I think it's the most successful one in the entire Bible. And what Nathan does here is it's the embodiment of something Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. Right? In Ephesians 4, we actually did a, a little series on this, I think it was two years ago now in the summer. And in Ephesians 4, Paul is talking about the primary problem that, that we have as Christians, the primary issue of the church, which is such an interesting topic because everybody has a different opinion about what that is. And Paul, I think this is wild, when he wrote to the Ephesians telling them what their main problem was, what our main problem is, uh, he didn't say it was lack of information, which is, it, it stands out to me because remember, you know, the people in Ephesus, they didn't have a the Bible like we do. They just got a letter every once in a while from Paul, and they did their best to try to live in light of that. Uh, Paul didn't say the biggest problem that Christians have is, you know, persecution out in the world, uh, which, again, is incredible to me because Paul wrote Ephesians from a jail cell that he was thrown into simply because he was a Christian. In Ephesians chapter 4, if you read it this week, when Paul talks about the biggest problem that plagues us Christians, he says it's our own immaturity. What he literally says in chapter 4 is we're, we're all a bunch of little kids who need to grow up. That's our problem. And what I admire about Paul is he said we are like that. You know, he, he, Paul's an apostle. Paul saw the risen Messiah. He was the man through whom God gave us at least 13 books of the New Testament. He said our biggest problem is we're all a bunch of little kids who just need to grow up. And then he tells us in verse 15 how to grow up. He gives us like, the, you know, the secret sauce, and it all boils down to this one word. Paul says, the way that you and I will become people of greatness, the way that you and I will, will break out of besetting sin, the way that you and I will become genuine people of love and wisdom and courage and poise and all of that stuff, people that image Jesus well to this world, it's all about this one phrase. He says, speaking the truth in love. In other words, this is God's plan A for the development of his people from the day of Pentecost moving forward. The way that God develops you and I into the people that he's called us to be, people that reflect Jesus well, is by plunging us into a community of people who are always speaking the truth in love to one another. That's it. And that, over the course of a lifetime, will turn you and I into something we could never otherwise become. So, so what does that really mean? Speaking the truth in love means being completely honest about what's going on in your life without compromise. That's the truth. Speaking the truth in love means doing everything you can to make a hard truth as hearable as possible. And what you're seeing in this little exchange between Nathan and, and David is probably the best embodiment in the entire Word of God of what that looks like in practice. So Nathan comes to David, and he tells him this story of a rich man who, despite having all kinds of cattle, decides to steal the one lamb that this poor man had and slaughter it in order to feed his guests, which that was a story that was very deliberately chosen by Nathan because, you know, if you know anything about David, you know that before he ascended the throne, he was a shepherd. David spent the formative years of his life out in pastures, literally caring for individual baby lambs. So when he heard this story, it would have got him blood boiling, and, and it's exactly what happens. He's, he's furious when he hears about this act of injustice that took place in his kingdom. And so, you know, he shoots himself in the foot. But the very first words out of his mouth, David says, that man should die for what he's done. And so with that in mind, 
you can just imagine the pin drop silence in the palace when Nathan responds to David and looks him dead in the eye and says, you're exactly right, David, and you are that man. And so what happened in that moment is out of love for David, Nathan communicated the truth to him completely without compromise, completely without compromise, but he communicated that truth in a way that would slip past David's defenses and penetrate deeply into his heart so that he might actually change. And so David, in response to that, with no leg left to stand on, he does something that we have not seen anybody do in this series so far. He falls completely on his sword, and the only thing he says is, I've sinned against the Lord. And right there begins the rescue of David. Now, we're going to move on to our third point. We'll be done today, but before we do that, we have to apply this, and there's really two ways to do this. On, on one hand, the question that you and I should be asking, um, and I'll just make it personal for you, in light of what we see here, is are you willing to be Nathan? Are you willing to do that? All right, temperamentally, all of us have a tendency to fall into one of two camps where people that either uh, err on the side of truth or we're people that err on the side of grace. And I told the 9 a.m., if you don't know which one you are, ask your spouse, your kids, or your friends, because they do know which one you are, all right? Some of us, just because of our temperament, have absolutely no problem telling people what we think they need to hear. Uh, and then we walk away from the smoking corpse wreckage that we leave in somebody's life with a kind of, well, I did my job, rest is up to the Holy Spirit. And I'll just tell you, if, that, if that's your bent, I'll just tell you, no, you have not done your job, not according to the Word of God. You have not done your job uh, until you have communicated a hard truth in a way to make it as hearable as possible. I'll let the Holy Spirit convict, and we'll move on to that. On, on the other hand, some of us absolutely despise conflict, and I have no idea why God does this, but God always makes sure that one of each get married. I don't know why that is. You know I'm telling the truth, all right? So if you're on the other end of that spectrum, you despise conflict, you avoid conflict, you, you, you just, you can't do it. It's like a muscle that you just never bother to flex, and, I, and I, let, me, let me say this to people of that temperament, and I'm, I, I, can, I can speak this with, with conviction because I can see it in my own life. People of that mindset have this tendency to hide behind a particular phrase. The phrase is, well, I don't want to confront them because of how it would make them feel. It's easy to hide behind that because then you feel like a good guy. The truth is, if we got honest with ourselves, the reason we shy away from confrontation when confrontation is warranted has nothing to do with how it will make somebody else feel and everything to do with how that confrontation makes us feel. We don't like how it makes us feel to step into somebody's life and maybe be seen as the bad guy for once, because whatever, whatever it is, the point is, it's really about us. And if that's where you're coming from, I'll just say, let me just ask you, in light of this story we're looking at this morning, let me just ask you, and here's where this gets real. Where would David have been if Nathan didn't love him enough to tell him the truth? In 14 verses, this guy has spiraled so wildly out of control, he's murdering his closest friends. We have no reason to believe that David's going to turn this ship around on his own. And I say that to say there's a real good chance that God has brought a number of people here today, and you know, you know I'm speaking to you right now, that there's somebody in your life, and God has given you a truth that you have been called to communicate to them. And, and, and the word of God for you in light of what we're seeing here is that person's life is not going to turn around and, until you love them enough to tell them the truth, regardless of how telling them the truth is going to make you feel. 
So first and foremost, are you willing to be a Nathan? Uh, and, and it'd be great if we could move on from that, but unfortunately, the other question we have to ask is, are we willing to hear from one? You know, it's easy to, easy to read this and say, all right, I got to be, you know, better at confrontation, so I'll yell at somebody, and when it goes poorly, I'll blame the pastor this week. But the other part of this equation is, we're like David. Anybody with a shred of self-awareness can see themselves in this picture of David here, and, and we need to be confronted. Now, let me let you behind the scenes in the development of this here teaching. When I was first putting this together, the question I was going to ask us is, uh, do you have any Nathans in your life? And I realize that is, that's a bad question. That's an unhelpful question. Uh, the reason is, just give me a minute here to, to, to kind of tease this out. The reason is because, yes, you do. I do. We all do. We are relational creatures created in uh, the image of a relational God. None of us were born and raised in a vacuum. God has placed people in all of our lives that were meant to function as Nathan. So the question is not, do you have any? Here's the question. How have you responded when they tried to tell you what you needed to hear? That's the question this exchange is meant to get us to ask. And I say that because there's a good chance that a number of us, if we get real honest and we start thinking back, we can come up with a number of uncomfortable conversations that we've had with people where God brought a Nathan into our lives, but we didn't respond to our Nathan the way that David responded to his. Maybe somebody, maybe somebody came in your life trying to tell you, and maybe they didn't you know, deliver it in the most skillful way because who's good at conflict? Nobody is. But maybe when you heard what they had to say, if you were even willing to hear it, you, know, you, you, you shut them down or you blew up on them or you, you, know, you punished them or you completely cut them out of your life. And what you effectively did, according to the Bible, that's like slapping the scalpel out of the hand of a surgeon who was trying to heal you. And so just as, as, as kind of like pointed as I can be here, let me just say this. If you, if you see this exchange between Nathan and David, and the first thought that comes to your mind is, well, hey, I would respond to Nathan's the way that David did. It's just I don't have any Nathan's in my life. Nobody's speaking. If that's where you're coming from, I think the wisest thing for you to consider is that maybe the reason there are no Nathan's speaking into your life is because they recognize you stopped listening. Either way, what this passage is, is, is written to tell us, and again, look at Adam and Eve, look at Cain and Abel, look at King Saul, look at Jonah, what this particular passage of a man who did get it wrong but then turned around is meant to show us is that one of, if not the primary way that God saves us from ourselves is by bringing somebody into our lives who's willing to tell us something that we don't want to hear. The question is, are we willing to listen when they start speaking? David was, by the grace of God, <clears throat> and so he, he, he owns up, he, he acknowledges a sin. The final question we, we, we got to answer here, and this is where, as heavy as this teaching is, this is where it at least begins to kind of turn around. The question is, what, what, what's God going to do about this? <clears throat> in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, it says, and this is in the span of one verse, it says, David responded to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And we're not even a verse later, later now. This is, half, this, is, this is verse 13b. It says, Then Nathan replied, The Lord's taken away your sin. You will not die. Now, you, you can read that, and yeah, that's great, but I, I, if you're being honest, you know the first thought that comes to your mind is, hang on a second here. Uh, David has hurt a lot of people. David has ruined some people's lives, if that's even possible for a human being to do with another human being. David's done that here. And great that he was willing to acknowledge his sin. I mean, a lot of people in leadership never do that. That's admirable that David's willing to do that. But so that's it. This whole thing just goes away. It evaporates. 
And the answer is no, it does not, because Nathan's not done speaking. In verse 14, it says, however, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you, the son born to you will die. Now, if you read this story real carefully, you'll notice that when Nathan told David about this act of injustice that had taken place in his kingdom, which, by the way, kings in that day and age, they, they, they not only served as the king, they also served as the judge. And so it wouldn't have been weird. David wouldn't have thought that anything, you know, he wouldn't have suspected anything when Nathan came and told him this story of injustice that had taken place in his kingdom. But when David, in the wake of this, if you know anything about, you see it in other stories of the Bible, when David just immediately, it's like the words fell out of his mouth, in response to that story of injustice, when David declared the death penalty over the person who did what Nathan said the man in the story had done, those words in an ancient Near Eastern monarchy, you can't just put them back in your mouth. You can't just say, just kidding. There's a lot of stories in the Old Testament, like the story of Esther, the story of Daniel, where when a king would make a decree, he really can't go back on that decree. So when David declared the death penalty over this crime, that was that. You couldn't put that back in the bag. And so when David confessed his sin, and when David repented of his sin, that's fantastic, but the death penalty didn't go away. It was simply transferred to someone else. So God did not set his justice aside in this story. Instead, his justice was aimed at another. And in this story, you got to follow me here, in this story, the justice of God was aimed at a child who was a son of David. I think you see where I'm going with this. This is a, an incredible Old Testament allusion to the gospel. What you're seeing in this story is the only way that God could make David's sin go away without making David himself go away. The only way that God could put an end to David's sin without putting an end to David himself, the only way God could forgive him was by allowing the son of David to pay for that sin with his life. Now pause here. And let's, let's imagine for a moment that we have never heard about Jesus. Or let's imagine that we were living between the time of David's failure and Jesus arriving here. It's almost like this story is written to get the reader to kind of have this longing in your heart. You know, for, for everybody that can read this and have the security to say, I know what it's like to be David. I know what it's like to isolate myself from the people God places in my life. I know what it's like to walk down that precarious path of sin one step at a time. I know what it's like for my failures to not only make a mess of my life, but for the lives of people around me. And this story is, is almost, it's about getting you to the point where, where, where you find yourself wishing, I wish that David had another son. I wish that David had another son that could be my substitute, like this son of David was David's. I wish that David had another son that could absorb my sin that could stand in my place, that could die so that I could live. And here's the point. The gospel says that's exactly what you have in Jesus. And it is so not without um, purpose that the very first verse, do you realize the first verse in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very first title assigned to Jesus, the first thing we're told about Jesus is that he is the son of David. And he's come to do exactly what this son of David does in this story, only it's not just about David anymore, it's about everyone who would come to God through Jesus Christ. I found this in a commentary years ago when I first studied this passage. We're almost done here, so please lean in. It says, for David, Yahweh's forgiveness was both marvelous and costly. There was no doubt that David was the one under the threat of death. David himself had judged Nathan's rich man a son of death. Yet Nathan had assured David 
that he would not die, but a death would occur. The child to be born would die. It's as if the child is David's substitute. I want readers to note the pattern here, for there are some of us who know this paradox of forgiveness that is both free and costly, because a son of David has been our substitute. The reason that God could pardon David in this story is the same reason that he can pardon any one of us. It's because Jesus Christ, the true son of David, has died in our place. And now by grace through faith in his name, every single one of us can hear God say the same thing that David heard Nathan say, that in Jesus, God has taken away your sin. You will not die. Let me call the worship team up, and we're going to close with this. <clears throat> I was telling the 9 a.m., I, I, uh, I don't think I've ever shared this particular story with you before, but last night when I was going over this teaching, this, um, this came to me, and it seemed like the, the most appropriate way to end it. Um, the way that our uh, situation is kind of laid out now in our house is we have Everett and Hayes, my sons, um, in a bedroom, and then we have uh, Scarlett, and she has a vacant bed that we're waiting for baby B to slide into when she can be trusted with the bed. And I don't know when God will see fit for that to happen, but it ain't today, I can tell you that. But a couple years ago, um, when Everett and Scarlett were still in the same room, Everett, uh, he slept on the top bunk of um, this like Ikea bed frame kind of thing. And, and we have this whole you know, bedtime ritual. And um, one night when I was putting Everett to bed, I noticed that he had carved something in, um, in the railing. You know, his bed had these rails that, you know, keep a kid from rolling off onto the ground. And I couldn't see it at first, and I kind of had to twist my head, and I saw that in the railing, right up next to his pillow, Everett had carved three words. Um, they were, good job today. Good job today. And... Um, I asked Everett, I said, what, do you, what are those words there for, buddy? What's that about? And he told me, he said he carved those words in that railing so that every night, I tell you, you think you're tough until you start having kids. He told me he carved those words in his railing so that every night, uh, just in case he had a bad day, he could look at those words and he could still, he could still feel good. And uh, here's the point. Every single human heart needs that. I don't care who you are. I don't care what mask you put on for the rest of the world. I don't care what you tell yourself. Every single one of us desperately needs, because we all have this awareness of sin. We all have this awareness that there's something deeply wrong with us that we just can't fix, and we exhaust ourselves, and we make a mess of things trying to hide it. Every single one of us needs a word from outside of us that tells us that despite the things that we've done or failed to do, that despite the person that we've we've been or we've failed to become, we need to know that despite all of that, we're still loved and we're still valued and we're still worthwhile and we're still accepted. And the good news of the gospel is that that's exactly what you have in Jesus Christ. And so I'll just tell you for anybody here today that when you hear the story of David, it hits home for you because that's the story of your life and you wrestle with guilt and you wrestle with shame and you wrestle with this feeling that you have to hide the promise of the gospel is that when we come to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, we all get to hear the same thing that David got to hear that day when he confessed and he repented. We get to hear our Heavenly Father saying, I have taken away your sin. It's not yours anymore. 
It doesn't belong to you anymore. It can't define you. It has no power over you anymore because Jesus Christ took it on himself and he put it in the ground. And now because Jesus Christ died, you will not die. You will live and live eternally. That's pretty good news. So here's where this story leaves us and this will be it today. First off, this episode in David's life is a reminder that none of us are beyond the power of sin and we're foolish to think otherwise. Secondly, this story shows us that God is faithful to bring people into our lives who will tell us things we need to hear. The question is, are we willing to listen to them when they speak? But thirdly, and maybe most importantly, this story is a reminder that absolutely no failure is final so long as we are willing to repent. The problem is, I don't think we do. And I think one of the main reasons that we do not experience the lasting change that Scripture says is available to us is because we think we have repented when in fact we've not. And so next week, that is explicitly and exclusively what we're going to talk about. So seven days from now, please be here for the conclusion to our Faces of Sin series as we talk about what the Bible is really talking about when it talks about the discipline of repentance. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, we've all been David. We've all isolated ourselves. And we've made a mess of our lives. And our decisions have impacted the people around us in ways that we don't want to admit and we don't want to face or whatever it is, God. The the truth is it's people like that that you came here for. And you're just waiting for us to do what David did in this story, to confess, to repent, to acknowledge our need. I just ask this morning, God, that that this day would be that day for somebody. And that somebody this morning could hear the same thing that David heard when he repented, that you have taken away our sin and we will not die because Jesus Christ took that sin on himself and he died so that we could live. Please help us to be people that are so aware of the gospel, so aware of how much you love us, of how valuable we are to you, so aware of the finished work of Jesus that all our lives we would hunt for sin and confess and repent with joy and gladness. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.